Okay. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you that we're here again, that you have led us through this study of your priesthood, that we are reaching the end of it. Thank you that we have had this opportunity to do so in a, a free way, that we are able to dig deep into your word without fear of persecution. Pray for those who are being persecuted now. Thank you for the snow outside, the way you meet our needs. For Christmas, the way you meet our greatest need with your son, Jesus Christ. So now all of this, we ask that you bless this time. Amen. Okay, so this is the penultimate uh, class in the priesthood class that we've been doing. Uh, it's really, in a way, the last class because... After we take a break, I'm just planning on coming back and just sort of pulling it all together and reviewing everything and uh, answering any questions you guys might have or anything like that. So I thank you guys for letting my dad come and, and teach. Uh, I know especially in the last class, he kind of threw a lot of stuff at you guys. Um, but hopefully it gave you some idea of where the priesthood is now, which is in this room with each one of us. Um, so, I mean, that was really sort of the the intent of the class was to bring it to the present day and and to show how each one of us really are, truly are priests under the great high priest and that everything we do from evangelism to our, you know, prayer to helping those in need, everything that we do really is a priestly activity, and that what happened in the Old Testament was foreshadowing what the church is doing now in many ways, but also in a priestly capacity. So we are truly to be making spiritual sacrifices because we are priests. So that being said, the last thing that I want to talk about is the place where the priests served. Uh, and that would be the, well, a lot of places. So um, the temple, the tabernacle, the Garden of Eden, the present day, where do we serve? What is the temple? What is the tabernacle? All of that. How does that relate to the priesthood? And honestly... This is a study that is really hard to condense down into an hour or two. And, and really what we should be doing is doing a sequel class. So maybe this is sort of a preview of, an, of another class in the future, looking at the biblical uh, doctrine of the temple and, and what it entails. Because so, there actually is a lot, and there is a lot to it. And it really is eschatological in nature. Does anyone know what that word means? So in our system, what? Eschatological. Yes. So it comes from the Greek word eschatos, which is the last things. So eschatology is the, the study of the last things. So in our systematic theology class that Hoyt and I are doing on Sunday mornings, We've been working through the doctrines of the church, and you know, so we were doing we did theology and hamartiology, which is the study of the doctrine of sin, and we're currently in the in what we call soteriology, uh, 
which is the doctrine of salvation. And eventually we will get to eschatology, which is the doctrine of the last things. Well, the temple, as we are uh, going to look at tonight, really figures prominently into the last things. And in a really beautiful way, the temple and the tabernacle are like a thread that is running from Genesis all the way from the beginning of, like from the very beginning of Genesis, like Genesis 1-3, all the way to chapters 21 and 22 in Revelation. They, the temple, the tabernacle, all of those things are the, a thread that's running through all of it. So that's what I want to look at tonight, is to try to paint for you a picture very briefly and screaming out for amplification in the future, um, a picture of what the temple is and what it is for and how it connects things in the Bible. So, shall we begin? Let's begin. Okay, so what is the temple? And when I say the temple, please understand that that means that I'm using that as a shorthand for tabernacle and so on. I'm not excluding it just to the temple of Solomon or the, you know, the temple in Jesus's time or anything like that. I'm talking about all of these things that are connected, and we'll talk about how they're connected as we go. But they, they were intended as the place where God dwelt, literally dwelt, and where humanity, through their priests, would encounter the presence of God. So, you know, we're all familiar with, well, with, uh, you know, the layout of, let's say, the tabernacle. Well, what, what was, the, how many layers of the tabernacle were there? There were three. There was the courtyard and the holy place, and then what was in the, in the center? The holy of holies. And so who went into the holy of holies? The high priest, how often did he do it? Once a year to do what? To make atonement for the sins of the nation. So he would go, and what's in, what's in the Holy of Holies? The ark. And what, what was above the ark? The presence of God. The mercy seat was the lid of the ark that had the cherubim on it, and the presence of God dwelt above that. So this is where humanity encountered God. And it was true of the tabernacle, and it was true of the temple. Was this the first place that had this arrangement? No. What was the first temple? Yes, the Garden of Eden very clearly is intended to be the first temple. And there's a lot of things that give us clues into that. So I want to that's where I want to begin tonight is is looking at the garden of Eden. That's not where we're going to go be far beyond that, but that's the place to start. So let's let's look at the garden of Eden. 
And there's a lot that we're going to get out of the creation account. So we're going to be, for right now, we're going to be looking at Genesis 1, 3 through 2, 3, roughly speaking. And let me just say right now, I'm not going to take any questions. I'll take questions, but I'm not going to take questions about creation in terms of the science of all of that. That's not what we're here to talk about tonight. So we can talk about that another time. So what I'm looking at is, is what we must keep in mind is while the Bible has scientific truths in it, it is also, and perhaps more importantly, theologically true. What is it telling us about God? Okay, that's really the most important thing that we need to look to the Bible for. And I'm not discounting anything else about creation, but there's a, a bigger picture that we're looking at tonight. And so with that in mind, the creation account, how many days did God actually do things in the creation account? Six days. Okay. So what did he do on each of those days? So the first three days, what he does is he is making an ordered realm out of chaos. So he is separating the light and the dark on the first day. On the second day, he is separating the waters and creating a space for the land. And on the third day, he brings forth land and from the water and fills it with vegetation. So that's creating order out of chaos. And the sea is always going to be seen as a place of chaos. Think back to verse 2 of Genesis. What was the Spirit of God hovering over? The waters of the deep, so, which is a place of chaos. There is no order. But out of that, he is going to bring order. And then on day four, five, days 4, 5, and 6, he is going to bring out the inhabitants of this ordered realm. So he will place the sun and moon into the sky. He will place creatures in the sky and in the waters. And on the last day, he will fill the land. And then in his final and greatest act of creation, he will fill the land or place in the land a creature of the land, but also made in his own image, a unique creature. And on the seventh day, God blesses all of this. And we should never underestimate the power of the blessing of God. It, it is a potent thing. And so he has blessed this thing that he has made. And what has he made? He has made a temple, a cosmic temple, where humanity in the persons of Adam and Eve are going to encounter God in person. They will, they will be in the presence of God. And there is a concentric nature to what God has made in all of this. 
And this is important because we're going to see this repeated later on. But this is part of what's telling us that this is a temple in nature. So you have the, the sea out of the chaos, and in the midst of that you have the dry land. And in the dry land you have the land of Eden. And within the land of Eden you have the garden of Eden. And within, at the center of the garden, you have the tree of life. So there is a concentric nature to all of this. And we will see this again. Now there's another element of, I don't know if concentric is quite the right word, but maybe stratified elements to the garden. And one that is really hard for us to grasp sometimes because it's not spoken of in the Genesis account, but it is described elsewhere in the Bible. And it fits the imagery used elsewhere in the Bible very clearly. And that is this. Within the garden, in the center of the garden, there was a mountain. We don't talk about that. But there is a mountain in the center of the Garden of Eden. And it was on that mountain that the Tree of Life was located. Now, how do we know that? Well, Genesis 2, 8 through 14, I will read to you. And again, this, this is something where you, you kind of have to where all of Scripture informs on all of Scripture. Do we believe that? Okay, so even if Genesis doesn't say, well, and there was a mountain in the middle of it, but if somewhere else in the Bible gives us more details about the garden, do we say, well, that doesn't apply to Genesis, or do we say, no, all of Scripture informs on all of Scripture, right? Okay. So let's start, though, in Genesis. What is, how, where is there a clue in Genesis that there is a mountain in the middle of the garden? Well, look at chapter 2, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put a man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now listen to this. A river flowed out of Eden to the water of the garden, to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. And it goes on to name the four rivers. Now, which direction do rivers flow? Down. So if there's a river coming out of the garden, to some degree, at least, there is an understanding here that the center of the garden is higher than other places. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. But then let's look at, well, we don't have to go there. You can go there later if you want. But in, in the book of Ezekiel, in, in, you can see there, 28, chapter 28, verses 13 and 14. 
Ezekiel specifically identifies the mountain of God as being within Eden. And we see this repeated again in Joel chapter 2, where Zion is equated again, the mountain of Zion is again equated with Eden. So in the prophets, and in other places in the prophets as well, you have this repeated correlation between the mountain of God, Zion, and the Garden of Eden. So it's clear, I think, if you piece that all together, that there is a garden within the mountain. This is not something that's new to the church. If you go back to the early church, this was an idea that was familiar to them. If you go back to Jewish literature, this is an idea that's familiar to Jewish literature. It's just something that's kind of an idea that's sort of fallen by the wayside in the last several hundred years. That we just we we don't necessarily recognize that there is a there was a mountain in Eden. But that it's important that there was though. And we'll see that later on. But <clears throat> Building on that, we then see that the structure of Eden in the creation and in Eden itself, and then later in the temple and the tabernacle, we see that there are parallel structures. Sky followed, or let's start at the bottom, actually, it would be better. The sea, the chaos, the land where the trees and animals are, and then the sky, reaching way up to the sky. And, you know, we think of God as being up in the sky. I mean, that's kind of just like our, our, our like infantile perception of where God is, is up. And then in Eden, you have the land outside the garden, the garden itself, and then God's mountain at the center. And that again follows the temple. You have the courtyard, and you'll note there it says, with the sea. There was a sea, in, when Solomon built his temple, outside of the building itself, in the courtyard of the temple, was the sea. We'll talk about that later, you know, and we'll, it'll make more sense. And then as you go into the temple, you have the holy place, and then... So to speak, at the summit of the mountain, you have the Holy of Holies, which is where God is encountered. Where did Moses encounter God? Where on the mountain? On the top of the mountain. So, and, this, and that's not the only time somebody encounters God on the top of the mountain. So there is, I think, a... a a consistent, almost instinctive place inside of humanity to climb high to encounter God. I mean, we see that here in Mount Shasta. But what were the kings of Israel, the good kings, always pulling down? Where? Well, they pulled down the Asherah poles and what height? 
from the high places. They're always having to pull down the idols from the high places. Why are they having to do that? So I think it's, it's, it, it's important to remember this structure for the Garden of Eden because Adam and Eve, as we talked about in the first class in this, when we were talking, you know, the first class on the priesthood, they were priests. They were in the, in the words that God used to describe what they were to do. My mind is blanking on what, he, what verse it was that he told them to do, but he says to work and keep the garden. When you get to Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that is the only other place where you see that terminology, the exact same words in Hebrew, Ahad and Shamar, to work and to keep. And where are they, the priests supposed to do that? In the temple. It's the same language. It's the same activity. They are to work it and keep it. And we'll talk more about that a little later when we get to the tabernacle and the temple. And, and so I think that there is this embedded thing in us to want to go up to meet God. When we look up, we think he's, you know, heaven's up here. I mean, like as a child, it's like that's where our, we're drawn to is that's where God is. And I think if you understand that there was a mountain in Eden and that's where God was encountered it actually makes a lot more sense of the account of the Tower of Babel. Because they were trying to build a tower, a mountain, to get back to God. And there is a, I think there, there was a sense of this desire to get back into the garden and to climb back up the mountain. Now, this might be a, a bit of a controversial take, but I think there's a good case for it. But when Cain and Abel were making their sacrifices, I think you, you can make a pretty good case, actually, that they were making their sacrifices at the gates of the Garden of Eden that had been shut, that had shut their parents out. Now, how do we, on what basis do we make that claim? When God is speaking to Cain, he says that sin is lurking at the gate. Nowhere else. And now, we, when we read that, we think, well, you know, sin is right outside and wants to come in. You know, that's kind of how I took it when I read that before. But nowhere else in Hebrew in the Bible, does that word for gate mean anything about the internal life of a person? Its only usage, 100%, is of a literal, physical gate. And I think it would make sense for Cain and Abel, the children of the inhabitants of the garden, to go back to the gate and say, please God, let us in and make these sacrifices. And Cain demonstrated why they weren't going back. So, now I'm not saying that's doctrine. 
There's a little speculation in that. But I think the Hebrew holds up in that case. And it makes sense. And it, it makes sense because of the, you know, from Cain and Abel, it's not a big jump then to Babel and the building of another mountain to try to get back to God. And the interesting thing too is when you look at all of the cultures in the ancient Near East, those ancient cultures that were contemporaries of the patriarchs, there was a consistent uh, attempt to build tall buildings to get back to God. You think of the pyramids and the ziggurats in Babylon, I mean, all over Samaria. And, and it seems like there, to me that there was a embedded uh, desire to return to climb the mountain of God in people. So, okay. But those, you know, at, at Babel and so on, they weren't the only ones that were doing this. The patriarchs are also, who are the patriarchs? No. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are the, the patriarchs. So th- those are the three fathers of, of the nation of Israel. So the patriarchs are constantly bringing back the same kinds of things. And they're echoing, again, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but it's worth mentioning. But they are... uh, there, There is an effort to, in some way, restore that connection to the garden as well. So we see the commands, like when... So God commands Adam and Eve with five things. So first he blesses them, and then he tells them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue the earth, and to rule over the earth. And those commands are all repeated to the three patriarchs, and then for the last time to the nation of Israel itself, when he brings them out of Egypt. And in each of those cases, there is temple activity going on where we see echoes of the Garden of Eden in these encounters with God and where God repeats the commands that he gave to Adam and Eve. And so we see in, in mostly in Genesis, but later on in Exodus as well, that God appears to them, they pitch a tent, Somehow there is a mountain usually involved. They build altars, and then they refer to the place as Bethel. What does Bethel mean? House of God. What is the temple? The house of God. So even back in this patriarchal period, we see uh, Echoes of the garden reverberating through the activity of the patriarchs. But then, and this is where it gets really 
really interesting. When God brings the people out of Egypt. Well, hold on. Let me pause there before we go on to this next level. So through this class, have we talked about the, the patriarchs? And in this case, specifically, we talked about Abraham. Was he a priest? Yes, he was. So the things he did were priestly things. He offered sacrifices. He interceded on behalf of those in need. So we, you, know, I mean, you can go back and listen to that class to, to see all of the ways that Abraham was a priest. And Isaac and Jacob also do these things as well. So they are also engaging in priestly activity. So when I talk about them building these, these primitive temple structures, these things that they're doing in Genesis, they're priests that are in effect, even though it doesn't use these words in particular, working and serving in a temple environment, in a sacred space where they have encountered God. So it continues from the garden, and I haven't even talked about Noah, but I mean, what did Noah land on? A mountain, and on the mountain he offered sacrifices. So, I mean, there's more to be said about that as well. So, it's not like there's nothing going on in terms of priestly activity or temple work, but nothing really formalized until the nation comes out of Israel. That's what I meant. You know, every single class, I'm going to find a word where I keep saying the wrong one. So I'm sorry. I, it never fails. Um, so God leads them out of Egypt. And we talked about this as well, how you know Jethro was functioning as in, in the high priestly capacity of Melchizedek. Moses succeeded him in that. There was the the priesthood of the firstborn, but that was aborted with the sin, with the golden calf. And Moses ascends the mountain, and that is where he encounters the presence of God. So Sinai is like a return to Eden. And there's more to it than that, though, because, and I talked about this briefly, but there is a stratification of Sinai when Moses goes up the mountain. And the stratification mirrors the strata of the temple or the tabernacle. Take your pick. It's the same thing. Where who's at the base of the mountain? The nation. And then who goes halfway up with Moses? Aaron and who else? The elders, the 70 elders, and then who goes to the, and Joshua, and who goes to the top? Moses. So again, it's like the courtyard, the holy place where the priests are, and then the high priest going up to the holy of holies. So Sinai is, in effect, a temple. It's looking back to the same stratification that's in Eden, where you have the land outside the garden, you have the garden, and you have the mountain. And at the top of the mountain is the tree of life. 
I don't, I think, I don't know. I, I don't know. So, it, part of me would say no, in, only in the sense that they were elders, I think, in terms of their position within the families of Israel, I, I think that's what they were, but the f- priesthood of the firstborn, which had just been established, Maybe they were. I don't know. It doesn't spec. It doesn't say specifically what their qualifications were. So, actually, as I'm second guessing myself, I would say they're probably. If if God were to tell us who they all were, we'd probably find that they were all firstborn in their families, so that they were fitting into that priesthood of the firstborn. But it doesn't say in particular. So. I lost my train of thought. So, yeah. So, what does God give Moses the instruction to build when he's up on Sinai? What was that? Yeah, the tabernacle. So, the tabernacle is now, and God says, I'm going to dwell in this place. And he gives Moses very specific directions on how to build and decorate and adorn the tabernacle. And so he goes down and they build it. And it's got that stratification of courtyard, holy place, and holy of holies the same stratification that Eden had and that Sinai had. Except now there's a few new wrinkles to it. For one, what is guarding... So who's in the Holy of Holies? Not the high priest, but I mean, who else is in there? God. Okay. And who besides Adam and Eve was in the garden? God. Okay. When Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, who guarded the entrance to it? Angels. Cherubim. What are embroidered on the curtains at the entrance to the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle? Cherubim. It's like, it's like, it's like recalling the cherubim that are guarding the entrance into the Garden of Eden. And we see this, these are, the cherubim are testified to several times. What else is in the tabernacle? The Ark of the Covenant, and what, what are some other things that adorn the inside of it? The ta- they're inside the Ark. What's the most famous symbol of Judaism besides the Star of David? The menorah. Okay. Yeah, the menorah. If you go back and you look at what the menorah is, in, is, dis, is how it's to be made and what it's to be decorated as, what is it supposed to, to look like? What? No. Let's look at Exodus 25. Twenty-five. We're on the third page now. 
31 through 36. Uh, it says, You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work, its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes. What are calyxes? What? No? Well, yeah, they are, but that's, but what are they? What? It, well, these things hold the candles, but they're not round, little round things. They're flowers. And its flowers shall be of one piece with it, and there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand on one side and three branches of the lampstand on the other, out of the other side of it, three cups made like almond blossoms, each with the calyx and the flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand, and the lampstand itself shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and the calyx of one piece with it under the pair of six branches. And it goes on and on and on. So what is that sounding like to you? Like a tree. So the menorah is intended, yes, what else, yeah, well, and what, what was there at the center of the garden? A tree. You see where this is going? Okay, well, it's going to get even crazier, because after the tabernacle, God is going to have something else built. What is that? The temple. Who builds the temple? Solomon does. Okay. So let's talk about what the temple looked like. Because this is where it, it really, it's like, okay, when you read this stuff, like what I just read about almond blossoms and all that, it's like when I read that, it's like glazed over. I'm like, let's get back to David and his killing 10,000. You know, it's like, you know, does that make sense what I'm saying? Yes, but God has put this stuff in here for a reason. And we need to, we ignore that at our peril. You know, we need to give this stuff the attention that it deserves. Okay, so is the temple laid out along the same lines as the tabernacle? Yes. Okay, so there is the same concentric elements, again, a courtyard, and then the building itself, of which there are two parts, the holy place and then the holy of holies. And the dimensions of the temple and the tabernacle are basically the same. And it's worth noting, because it's going to come back again later, that the Holy of Holies is a perfect cube. Okay? Just bookmark that. Because that's going to come back later on in Revelation. So, what was the inside 
of the temple decorated as? Well, the one carryover from the tabernacle is the gates separating the holy place to the holy of holies also has the cherubim. Okay? So once again, recalling the cherubim, the angels that are guarding the entrance into the garden. But what about the rest of it? Well, look, let's look at 1 Kings 6. I mean, in, we could just read the whole chapter, really, but we'll try to be selective. So 1 Kings 6, and let's look at 32 and 35. Uh, For the entrance of the inner sanctuary, this is 31, he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and the doorposts were five-sided. He covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. And it goes on. Okay, so what is there decorating it? Cherubim, palm trees, and flowers. They are recreating the Garden of Eden. That is exactly what is going on in the temple. It is a deliberate and explicit recreation of the Garden. Yes? You mean the description of it? I th- well, I think that's part of it, but it's also, it's his mercy and his grace. It's like we've been kicked out of the garden, but now he, in his mercy, is giving us an outpost of the garden where we can come back into his presence. It's his mercy in action. The tabernacle itself and the temple after it are a great act of grace. We've been kicked out of the garden. We are sinners. But here he is giving humanity a chance to come back into the garden. Isn't that amazing? Like we read these things and it's just glazed. You know, get me back to the action. But it's like there's more Christ in the description of the temple than there is in most places in the Bible. Isn't that crazy? It really, it's like, read, it's like we should be hearing this stuff preached on Sunday morning. And I'm not saying that as an indictment. I'm saying nobody preaches this. I'm not saying it's Brandon or, I mean, who preaches the description of the temple? Nobody. <laughs> Yeah, but like, my goodness, do you see where this is going, though? It's really, really, really amazing. So, anyway, so you can see then that the furniture and everything else in the... uh, Hey, Hoyt, can you go um, into the library? And there's an ESV study Bible in there. Can you grab that for me? Because they actually... And then open it up to... uh, 
Open it up to page 604 and you can pass it around. I wish I had like a way to project this stuff up here, but they actually do have a drawing, kind of like an artist rendering of the temple. And if you look at the walls, you'll see all the palm trees and the flowers and stuff like that. Sure. He's, he's, he'll, he'll open it up to it and pass it around here. I don't know if the copies would work because it's, it's like right in the middle of the page. So page 604, Hoyt, at least in this one that I have, it would be in the First Kings 6 section. Yeah, it's Solomon's Temple. So, but you look on the walls and you can see like palm trees and stuff. And so the whole, and, and, and it's not limited to the palm trees. You read it again. I mean, you keep reading like elsewhere in, in six, it's like, it says palm trees and open flowers. It says pomegranates and lilies and gourds and flowers. And there is this garden-like abundance decorating the inside of the temple. Isn't that amazing? Oh, Revelation has something to say about this. We're going to get there tonight, hopefully. So, and you'll notice if you look at that picture, if also there's that big basin of water out in the courtyard. Okay. No, and you know what it's called? The sea. The sea, literally the sea. The ocean. Because it is representing that outer zone of the the ocean of chaos outside of the land and the garden. Does that make sense? Do you see all the symbolism in all of this? It's beautiful. It's recreating the garden right before our eyes. And where, who, is, who is in this place? Well, yeah. And who is working and serving in this place? The priests. Okay. So you see how this, this relates to the, the, the class on the priesthood? But honestly, this whole thing that we're talking about with the temple, we could do another six or eight week class on this. Those are the cherubim. Yeah. No. Yeah, that that's no, they're not. You you read about them in Ezekiel and it's like, yeah, my mind is blown. So <clears throat> Yeah. No, those are the seraphim. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. My brain is, is mush right now. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, so you can see where, where this whole thing is, is headed. Okay. But the parallels between the garden and the tabernacle and the temple don't end there. In fact, they get much, much deeper. So if you look at that chart on the third page, I did not make this chart. This chart comes from 
a guy at Western Seminary named Tim Mackey. So I, I am borrowing that from him. And this lays out even further and in great detail the combination, I mean, the, com- the, the, the association between the garden, the creation of the garden, I should say, the, const- the, the tabernacle's design the, that God, as he gives it to Moses, the construction of the tabernacle, and the construction of the temple. So there are parallels right down the line in each of these things. And this just seals the deal that there is an ironclad connection between the garden and the tabernacle and the temple. And that these are really intended, these structures are intended to be a return to the garden. What does it mean to be a return to the garden? What's the res- what is the end goal? Just Are we all just supposed to be into horticulture? Yes, to be back in the presence of God. That is the purpose of all of this. That is the purpose of the temple. That is the purpose of the tabernacle. And that was the original place in the garden of our ability to look God face to face, to be in his presence. And that's what we're, we're all trying to get back to. Okay. What was that, Hoyt? Yeah, it's to, to get back to that. Yeah, well, we're, get, we're getting there. <laughs> um, Not heaven, to, to be in his presence. Well, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And in, the, in that, it's going to, they're going to be merged almost. Merged. So, okay. So, <clears throat> on the, the last page of the notes, on the last page of the notes, you can see I've drawn out in my... I apologize for the crudity of my models there. Um, Yes, thank you. I was waiting for somebody to get that. Um, (laughs) uh, Just trying to show the concentric nature that all of these things have, how there is a consistent connection between all of them. You know, just this inwardly, concentric thing until you get to the presence of God. And, you know, there's so many other things that we could say about all of this stuff. Um, like, like with the patriarchs, how, you know, things happen for Abraham near the oaks of Mamre. Why, why near trees? Why a burning bush up on the mountain? You know, why all of these things? Well, there's connections to all of it. And now you, you kind of have some of the coordinates on the map to start to see how some of these things might connect together. And it really, it really enhances our appreciation for the Old Testament, I think, when we really see how these things are all being pulled together. And I have to imagine that when Christ 
you know, is telling these two guys, preaching how the whole Old Testament, the whole Bible, the whole Scripture is, is pointing to Christ, you know, walking along. I'm sure he mentioned some of this stuff. You know, this is all part of how the Old Testament, all of it, is pointing to him. And that leads us to him. So the temple is up to this point has been the place where people go to be in the presence of God. But what is he called, Emmanuel? What does that mean? God with us. So does that sound like there's a shift in what's going on? If God is with us, do we have to go back to the temple? Or is he with us? He's with us. Okay, so go to John chapter 1. <clears throat> now, we only have a few minutes left. <laughs> and let me just pause right here and say, you know, if the elders of the church were ever foolish enough to let me do a sequel class of this just on the temple, we would spend a significant amount of time in the New Testament. But I've, spent, I've dwelt most of tonight on the old because I feel like that a lot of that is more obscure, you know, and it's like it helps to have that illuminated. And some of the New Testament stuff now can take a more fuller, we can have a, a more fuller, full appreciation of it. But some of it we're aware of already, but now it's like, oh, oh, now I really get it. Does that make sense? But we could spend a lot of time just fleshing this out from the New Testament. So let's talk about it just a little bit before we close tonight, okay? Um, so the key part here is John 1.14. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory <clears throat> as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, John, earlier in John's prologue, and I'll just say right now, John's, John 1 is my absolute most favorite part of the Bible. But John 1 through 5, uh, 1 through 4 rather, or 1 through 5, establishes very clearly who and what the Word is. So that's a whole other conversation. But it's God. Okay? It's Jesus. But as it says, the literal, a literal rendering of John 1.1 from the Greek is, and what the Word was, God was. So the Word and God, while distinct, are also one. Okay, but here it says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay, that is a profound statement, deep into the Old Testament. So just on a surface level, he's dwelling among us. Is that Emmanuel? Yes. Where, where did God dwell with the nation of Israel when they had the tabernacle, while they were wandering through the wilderness? Where would they set the tabernacle up at in relation to everyone else? 
No. In the center. They'd have a camp with three tribes on each side of a square, and the priests camped in the interior of that, and in the center of that would be the tabernacle. And there God dwelt. He dwelt among his people. So here in John 1.14, it says, The Word became flesh, so here's God becoming flesh, and dwelt among us. Okay. The word there in Greek is eskenosin, which literally translated would be he tabernacled amongst us. He pitched a tent amongst us. So the word has become flesh and now the tabernacle is in the midst of its people, his people. So Christ is now the new tabernacle, the new temple. Who built the temple in Christ's time? Well, originally it was the Jews, but then Herod. It's Herod's temple, is it not? Herod was an evil man. I mean, the original temple was good. It was built by God's people, but then it was rebuilt and enlarged by an evil man who was not even a Jew. He's an Idumean, which means he's a descendant of who? Yeah, which is a descendant of who? Esau. Yeah. So Herod is an Edomite. He's a descendant of Esau. He is not a Jew. Fun stuff. Esau is the brother of Jacob. Yeah. So, what? No, but Hebrews, Apiru. So, okay. No, at this after post-exilic, post-Babylon, Babylonian exile. So, because where, who got who got exiled to Babylon? No. No, 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 no. No, no. Not Egypt, Babylon. Who got exiled to Babylon? Yeah, he was. The southern kingdom, which was called what? Judah. So it's when they return, they're mostly Judites, although there's Benjamites and Benjaminites and others, but, you know, it was the tribe of Judah. That's why it was the Roman province of Judea. Because that's the Latin word for Judah. Southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was Israel. Okay. I've only got a few minutes, so I don't want to stray too far off course. So if you turn to John 2, and we've already seen that Jesus is now the new tabernacle. He's the new place where God's presence is. He is God, but it, God's presence is dwelling amongst excuse me, his people. 
So John 2, 18 through 21 says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and I will, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So the place where God's presence is, where pe- people can encounter God's presence, has shifted. The temple is no longer the structure. It is now the Word made flesh. But he is tabernacling. He is being the place where God can be encountered right there amongst the people. Does that make sense? So there's been a shift. And so just as the priesthood was shifted from the Levites to now all of those followers of Christ, okay, we, my dad talked about the last week, just as the priesthood shifted, and we are all, all followers of Christ are now priests, so too now are we also the temple. So we are priests, and we are also the temple. What happened on Pentecost? Comes down and what? And indwells people. So the presence of God is now in each follower of Christ. So through Christ, he is the temple. But what does it say in Ephesians 2, 19-22? I've got it there on the last page. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the presence of God is no longer in the Holy of Holies. That's why the veil was ripped in the temple, opening up the place where God dwelt. And is now God dwells in each believer. We are now the temple, and who is the cornerstone of the temple? It's Jesus. It's through him and by him and in him that we are able to be part of of the temple. <clears throat> first Peter chapter 2, and that's close to First Peter 2.9, which is kind of the key verse for this whole class. So, but it says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And the New Testament goes on and on in Acts with like the, the vision of Stephen before he's martyred 
in 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, in Hebrews 8, all of these places it talks about the church is now the temple because the presence of God is now in each one of us. And he is building us up. He is building his church. He is building his priesthood. He is building his temple to be the place where, in effect, we are able to return to Eden, to be in the presence of God. And in Revelation, and I will end on this, but in Revelation 21 and 22, you get a picture of this. And I don't think I have time to really go into Revelation 21, but I'll end on Revelation 22 just to give you an idea and maybe sometime in the future we can dig a lot deeper into this because there is so much more to say. I, I kid you not. But let's look at Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. It says, And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, Yielding the fruit each month, the leaves were, of, were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and the servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So what do you see there but you see the river, remember it says there is a river flowing out of Eden. And you see the tree of life where one was in the garden and there were six or ten in the temple, ten menorahs lining the Holy of Holies. Now you have twelve and they are flowering just as they were flowering in the temple. And God will be our light we will encounter him face to face. What, did, what happened when Moses saw God? He didn't even see him face to face. He kind of saw him out of the corner of his eye from a crack in a rock. And what happened to Moses? He was radiant. They had to veil him because he was so radiant. And so now they, they will see his face. And who else saw God face to face? Adam and Eve in the garden. So the garden will be restored. And the temple, the tabernacle, all of those things, the church today are the continuation. They are the outposts, the, you know, the, the, the waypoints back to Eden, pointing back to the way, pointing the way back to being in the presence of God and being able to see him face to face. And all of it is pointing towards Jesus, and it's only through Jesus that we will be there when those trees are flowering and healing the nations and the river is flowing. So, that ends my class on the priesthood. We'll do one more class in, after Christmas, the 11th of January. So the 11th of January, we'll do one more class, but I'm not going to do anything New. I'm just going to kind of summarize everything and pull it all together. 
And if you guys have questions, you can stump me if you want. Yes. They're all online. Yes, they are. You have to just look up my name and you'll you'll find them. So Isn't that amazing? I mean, you think of the tabernacle and the temple, you never see this stuff, but it's like it's all pointing back to God. Correct. Yes. It. I think the issue isn't even in that because the thing that really separates and I've mentioned this before so I'm not trying to beat a dead horse but the issue that really separates us from Catholics is the issue of authority and our authority is only to the word the only authority over us is the word of God but in the Catholic Church you have the Bible and you have tradition and both of those, the magisterium, the pope, the cardinals, they have the sole power to interpret both of those. So if you're interpreting the Bible and tradition and you're the only one who can interpret it, you can make up whatever you want. So trying to argue from the Bible that you know why priests aren't necessarily a biblical concept is really kind of, I mean, maybe you will convict somebody's spirit, and so, and if that's the case, that's true. That's a that's a good thing, but really, the issue is, who do they recognize as the authority over them? Does that make sense? Or the Old Testament. Interpreted by the magisterium. So, okay. Any other questions? I hope this was good. Okay, good. So, okay. Well, let's, let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you that your spirit is present here, that we are your temple, that we are the place where we can encounter you, be in your presence as you indwell each of us. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who has made all of that possible, who has made all things and sustains all things. So we thank you for this Christmas season where we can focus our minds on the incarnation and the fact that you took on flesh and tabernacled amongst us. So I thank you for this class. I pray that it has been a blessing and will continue to be a blessing as we meditate on your word. And we say all of these things in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.